Well, hello and welcome to another episode of the Asking for a Friend podcast, an elder-led ministry of Believers Baptist Church in Emory, Texas. My name is Duffy Henderson and I'll be your host. The Asking for a Friend podcast exists as a weekly resource for the edification and benefit of God's people. And here we hope to provide helpful, thoughtful, and most importantly, biblical material as we address everyday life questions and issues. So if you find this podcast helpful, please take a few moments to share it with someone that you think would also benefit from it. Thanks for listening in and may the Lord bless it greatly to you as a means of grace for your spiritual growth and benefit. And we sure hope that you'll enjoy today's episode. Well, today we have a unique and sort of special edition episode we're doing for the month of July. Um, Some interviews with folks that are not here in Emory, Texas. And um, I'm joined today once again on our podcast with Jason Rowland, one of our pastors here at Believers Baptist Church. And we are also joined by a very special guest, Jim Osmond, who's up in Idaho, and we'll give him a chance to introduce himself in just a moment. But we're talking about um, his book, one of his books, God Doesn't Whisper Today. That's the focus of the episode. And Jim, we're so thankful that you've joined us. Um, hello, and how are you doing today, man? I'm doing well. Thanks, Duffy. I appreciate you having me on the program. It really is an honor. Yeah, we're excited to do this today. Um, I just wanted to, for our listeners, um, we'll, we'll let you introduce yourself in just a minute, but just a little background for me and my uh, my getting introduced to you is, is kind of interesting. Um, I had never heard of you before G3 last year and, uh, and AGTV. So those two media outlets um, really helped me to, to get to know you. Um, I had subscribed last summer to AGTV and your series on your book uh, popped up and I was like, wow, that looks really interesting. So my wife and I ended up watching all of the episodes and then I, ha- I had no idea you would be at G3. I-, I met you at one of your tables and you gave me one of your books and you said, here you oh, go. Oh, interesting. Read this. Yeah. <clears throat> and I was like, uh, okay, awesome. Great. And so I read it. I, I was like, oh, this is great. Um, I'm an avid book reader. And it just totally, uh, it, it caused me to have a paradigm shift um, with, with the case that you had laid out in your book. And so I was like, who is this guy? This, this, people need to be reading this book. <laughs> um, and so uh, well, I, I came here in, in, in January to Believers Baptist. I joined staff here. And I told Jason, um, he's our lead pastor, preaching elder here. I was like, man, you got to read this book. Um, just give it a chance and uh, buckle up. (laughs) It's good. It's worth it. And so fast forward to here, he and I have both read your book and we were looking at uh, who we could interview for our July episodes, for our podcast, for our church, just to kind of get some variety. And I was like, man, would it be cool if we could get Pastor Jim on? So thank you for joining us. And so would you take a minute just to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about in your ministry. Yeah. Just, just out of curiosity, which book was it? Was it Truth or Territory or God Doesn't Whisper? Which one? Did God, I... God Doesn't Whisper was the one I read. And I've also read about okay. halfway through um, Truth or Territory. Okay. All right. Yeah. Both of those subjects were a, a paradigm shift of my own um, because I... Interesting. Both of those books are kind of my own mea culpa for believing and teaching some of those things early in, in okay. my Christian life and, and okay. ministry. So I end up writing those books and as sort of my apology for ever, ever believing some of those things as, as I had been kind of moved mm-hmm. out of uh, believing those things as well. So mm. yeah, I'm up in uh, Sandpoint, Idaho. <clears throat> I'm not in Texas, though. Texas is one of my uh, relocation mistress states, Texas and Florida, are the two places that if I had to, if I had to, to leave Idaho, I would, those are the two states I would go to. Well, come on. Not because I like warm weather, but because of the politics and, and the people. Yeah. yeah. So, Amen. Yeah. I, I pastor a small church um, in rural North Idaho, just outside of Sandpoint. We're up about an hour south of the U.S. Canadian border. So we're as far north as you can get without actually becoming a Canadian. And uh, not because I necessarily like or want to live in Canada, but I like the cooler weather and it is a beautiful area. Uh, I ended up pastoring a church that was instrumental in my salvation back when I was 15 years old. And uh, I got I got saved in 
1987 at a Bible camp that's about 20 minutes south of, of the church that I pastor now, 20 minutes south of the town that I grew up in here. And I just had, before I got saved, I'd started attending this church uh, just in vacation Bible school and Sunday school and youth group. And then the Lord saved me in 1987 and the church was instrumental in my Bible college education, um, helping fund that and sending me to Bible college with no intention that I'd ever become the pastor. And then in, uh, through a long series of providential circumstances in 1996, I was asked to take over as the pastor here. So I've been doing that now for just over 25 years and um, been doing it with joy. It's a great group of people. It's a fantastic church with great leaders and, and, and great servants. And uh, the Lord has been blessing the ministry here. So that's that's a little bit about me. So some, from what I understand, you've been roughly in the same place for a very long time. Is yeah, I, I was. Yeah, I was born uh, in exile in the state of California. <laughs> my mom and dad were on vacation. I like to say when I was born, my family That's goes funny. back in this area five generations. So okay. I grew up. Uh, by the time I was three years old, my mom and dad were divorced, and she had moved back to Sandpoint, and that's where okay. I grew up. Went to grade school here, graduated from high school here, and I've lived here since uh, 1975. I guess is is when we finally got back here. So I, um, I live right now about a quarter of a mile from the house I grew up in. I wow. pastor a church that's about a quarter of a mile from where my grandparents lived. And I have not, the apple has not fallen very far from the tree. In fact, it's just sitting right at the trunk of the tree, basically, as far as my life goes. It's, it's all been spent right here, other than four years wow. of Bible college. Yeah. Wow. That's cool. That's interesting. Um, Jason, you kind of have a, um, a little bit of an upbringing prior to coming out this way. I do. I, Jim, I, I, first of all, just again, um, echo what Duffy has said. Uh, thank you for joining us. And, and I yeah. so appreciate uh, both your books. I just finished God Doesn't Whisper and I'm working on Truth and Territory right now. Uh, so pastoral. And I appreciate that. And in fact, I'm going to encourage our other elders or other pastors to be uh, reading the book. But yeah, I'm, I'm only uh, two counties over from the county that I grew up in. So I've been basically in the same area. Uh, I can um, have so many memories just locally of all the um, places and opportunities that the Lord has given me just growing up. But um, then also um, I've been here at this church for 23 years now. So we've got some similar backgrounds. And the only thing, the only negative thing, Jim, that bothers me is this San Francisco 49er thing? What's, what's up with that? I mean, I, you know, we just, that's hard to, I, that's hard to swallow. Is it? At least I'm not a Patriots fan. Yes, that's true. Yeah, I'll see, I'll see that, that's fan. true. That's true. Yeah. Well, I told you I was born in California, right? And that's because right. um, my, my uncles and my grandfather moved from Sandpoint down to California um, before I was born. And my mom had traveled down there to be with them. And that's where I was born. But by the time she moved back up here, by the time I was three, but then my uncles and my grandfather kept bombarding me all through my childhood with San Francisco 49ers paraphernalia, hats, coats, gloves, boots, just banners, everything. They'd send it to me for Christmas and birthday and Easter and all of that stuff. So it was just kind of my adopted, uh, my adopted uh, family team, as it were. And back then, and this is not 1980s, that started paying attention to football. And back then, the Seattle Seahawks were everybody's bye week. There was more people on the sidelines of the kingdom than there were in the stands. Nobody watched the Seahawks. And everybody was watching the 49ers because it was Joe Montana and Jerry Rice and Brent Jones and John Taylor and, and that whole, you know, Roger Craig and that whole crew. So it just became, that's when Montana Rice started winning Super Bowls. It became very natural just to sort of adopt the, the family team. And that's just been my team ever since. And I've been faithful to it. And all, all of my kids are 49ers fans. So it's, oh, we have, we have, uh, I've raised my family well. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we, we've got, we're, we're cowboy fans down here. And uh, at least I am. And uh, yeah. I'll hold my nose. <laughs> I'll hold my nose and have a conversation with you anyway. Yeah. Let's do it. Yeah, and and uh, I'm a baseball fan, so I couldn't care less about if you're a 49ers fan or not. So that, that's I'm the oddball down here. <laughs> well, hey, Pastor Jim, um, love to let's kick off our conversation today about the book. Um, we want to first of all, we want to just encourage folks whoever's listening to this, grab a copy of this. It's well worth your time. Um, he has done a, a a great job at not only critiquing something that many of us 
um, in broader evangelicalism likely have just been steeped in. We don't even realize it. But he does a wonderful job of helping you as a reader think through it on your own. And he presents a great case for this isn't a whole bunch of like opinionated polemical writing. This is just um, let's be consistent in our theology. And so I want to want to ask Pastor Jim, he mentioned it just a minute ago, but um, to get the conversation going today, what was your motivation or inspiration for particularly writing God Doesn't Whisper? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that was, though it was my fourth book. It was actually, I had intended it to be my first book. And the reason being is I, I mentioned the early, early pages of the book that uh, when I was at Bible college, I really struggled with discerning God's will for my life. Uh, should I go back to a second or third year at Bible college, or should I just be content with one year at Bible college? And all of the Bible college students that I was around and, and everything I'd been exposed to taught me that um, I, I would I, I should be able to hear the voice of God regarding that. God would give me a sign, a whisper, uh, some sort of a prompting or a nudging or make it clear to me so, through extra biblical revelation. And this was not a charismatic Bible college, mind you. It was a cessationist Bible college. But practically speaking, they were very continuationist in terms of how they viewed um, following God's leading and God's guidance. And so I was taught and believed because I wasn't exposed to any anything different that I, I would be able to hear God's voice for myself and make this decision. And, and that voice never came. And that started me on a on a, a trajectory of trying to find out how is it that God speak to us and how should I be making decisions? And through a series of events, I was exposed to um, Greg Kokel's teaching, um, uh, decision-making and the will of God and a book by the same title by Gary Friesen. And those, th that book and that teaching series just sh reshaped my mind uh, on that issue and helped me to see that the reason that I was not receiving private whispers and promptings and nudgings is because God hasn't promised that that's how he, that's how he will guide us, that he guides us through other means, through his word, through wisdom, through, um, uh, through what is revealed in scripture and that God providentially guides our steps. So that's kind of was a, an entire paradigm shift where I jettisoned one view of divine guidance, hearing whispers, promptings, nudgings, the still small voice and, and all of that, and began to try and, and, and understand what scripture teaches about the significance of God's word in our lives and, and understanding God's providence and how God leads us in decision-making. And that was a multi-year process. And, and at the time I was still, I had just begun pastoring Kootenai Community Church and people started asking me questions about this. So I wrote a series of articles on that for our church newsletter. Uh, 16 or 17 articles on on hearing God's voice, where I, I dealt with some of the things, the ideas that I had jettisoned and began to teach a little bit about scripture. And then when I got ready to, um, to, to, to write the book on the subject, I was, I was writing a series on spiritual warfare, and I was trying to write that series on spiritual warfare and uh, write the book on hearing the voice of God. And I finally just set aside the voice of God thing. And so I'm just going to focus on the spiritual warfare articles. And then I thought, why don't I turn that into a book? So I did that with Truth or Territory, which is a whole nother story about how I, I jettisoned a bunch of false doctrines regarding spiritual warfare and, and how we are to engage in that and what real spiritual warfare is. And so after I did that book, then I came back to the Hearing the Voice of God book, and and uh, which I titled God Doesn't Whisper. And in that book, I'm, I'm really kind of dealing with all the stuff that I once believed and practiced and thought through, and I'm critiquing that and then trying to lay out a biblical case for how God does speak to us, that God does not need to speak to us through these other methods because what he has given to us in scripture is sufficient. So it was really the, the people asking me questions and my own agonizing through those issues that really kind of directed my steps. I, I just need to put this into a book and, and I'm glad by the providence of God that it ended up being my fourth book instead of my first one, because I, I think I'm, I'm far more satisfied with how the book turned out than the series of articles turned out. And I really had to go back and it became almost a two, almost three year writing process where I went back and read all of the original sources, you know, experiencing God. And I, I went through this stuff by Joyce Meyer and Willard and all that. I read the books. I interacted with it and just collated all of the, the statements and the the parrot and, and the paradigm that they were laying out so that I could handle it as thoroughly as I possibly could. Um, I really tried to leave no stone unturned of all of the stuff that I once believed of it. Wow, that's fascinating. So I, I want to ask this um, later in our episode, and we'll get to that. But before we do that, um, 
I want to ask you about the the, the folks that um, people would know names of currently, you know, today, where you could go to, um, well, not anymore really a Lifeway, but a few years ago, you could go to a Lifeway bookstore or a Mardell bookstore, any sort of a bookstore and pick up all kinds of content with this, but that'll be a little bit later. But would you mind, um, your the whole book is really centered on a critique of HVG theology. And that's, I don't know if you, uh, is that your original term? Did you, did you yeah. coin that or... Well, I don't, I, I don't know if I was the first one to use those initials, but somebody else might have used them. I don't get, I didn't get that from any, anywhere. I simply okay. used it because I, I got sick of typing out hearing the voice of God advocates or sure, hearing sure. from God advocates. And so I just thought of HVG, which is hearing the voice. Yeah. Voice of God. So I refer to it as HVG theology, which is the theology that God God needs to speak to us outside of Scripture. That we need to hear God outside of Scripture, and that we can expect to hear God outside of Scripture. So, it and and really that encompasses, I think, a, a large spectrum of um, people. It can be your continuationists, like uh, for instance Charles Stanley, who wrote a book, How to Hear from God. He would be considered a, a sorry, not a continuation, a cessationist. He would be considered a cessationist, somebody who mm -hmm. does not adhere to the continuation of miraculous yep. sign gifts. Um, so you got you got guys like Charles Stanley on on one end of the spectrum, and then of course you've got Charismatics, Pentecostals, and then you've got uh, Word of Faith, and then you've got New Apostolic Reformation. So there's this large spectrum yep. of of what we would broadly call evangelical that runs the gamut from your cessationist all the way to your radical continuationist who still believes that the apostolic gifts are included. All of the are, are continuing. All of those would believe in what I would characterize as HVG theology, yeah. that we can, that we need to, and that God needs to speak, uh, hear the voice of God, and that God needs to speak to us outside of Scripture. So that, that I, I don't know of anybody who used that term before me. Um, I'm fine if it catches on because I think it's a good catch-all term to describe a theology that I think is the sufficiency of Scripture. Yeah, that was helpful for me as I was thinking about it, because when I when I opened your book for the first time and was reading through the first few chapters, I just remember thinking my mind just bells were going off with um, things that I'd read, people I'd heard speak, movies I'd watched, um, all sorts yeah. of. I mean, it was just like this is all over the place. And I was like, hold up now. Wait a minute. Um, the I, I didn't know what to do. I, I actually put the book down after the first couple of chapters and I was like, I need to, I need to chew on this. And then I ended up reading the rest of the book within a very short amount of time. But I wanted you to just speak really quick. You mentioned the HPG theology. That really is the, the position being critiqued in the book. And then uh, this idea of scripture being infallible, sufficient, inerrant, this, uh, what some might call sola scriptura, you know, the, the, the ultimate governing um, divine word from God for the church and for life and for godliness. And you yeah. kind of have these two contrasted. And really, I believe, if, if I'm not mistaken, your position is that those that would hold to a doctrine of sola scriptura are being inconsistent when they then adopt HVG theology. And this is just an application of the doctrine of sola scriptura in the life of a believer when we're seeking out God's will. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, I think that, I, I know that there are reformed continuationists like Sam yeah. Storms, like uh, yeah. um, not D.A. Carson, uh, Wayne Grudem, yeah. um, and some guys like that. I, I don't deny their salvation. I don't deny the sure. salvation of people who would disagree with me on this issue, because I don't think this sure. is a salvific issue. I think it's a very important issue, because I do think that the cessationist continuationist divide in evangelicalism is a significant and important thing because really it comes down to what is your view of scripture. So I do think it is inconsistent to say that it is in scripture and scripture alone that we are given an inerrant and infallible and authoritative revelation from God. And at the same time to say, but today he speaks to us in a non-authoritative, non-inerrant and non-infallible way of visions and dreams and promptings and nudgings and impressions and still small voices and and, and all of those things. I, I think that that is an inconsistent thing to say. It's, it's an inconsistent theology to say that scripture is that when God speaks, the scripture is authoritative because it is God speaking. And then to say, but when he speaks to me outside of scripture, it's not necessarily authoritative. Yeah, that's good. Hey, Jason, you want to pop in? Do you have any thoughts you want to ask or bring up? Well, I do. I, I think 
Jim, the book was life-changing for me as well, just because even in the midst of all my pastoral ministry and 37 years of vocational ministry altogether, um, Charles Stanley and, and some of the other um, writers along this line, using that kind of language uh, was just commonplace. And I, I've used that kind of language to talk about my own experiences, you know, and, yeah. and uh, when I went to, pr to propose to my uh, wife, um, I had been given instruction by my father-in-law who was um, um, adamant that my wife finish college before we got married. Um, I, I wasn't willing to wait that long. And so uh, long story short, a train track with a train on it or not on it determined whether I was going to go ask my uh, father-in-law if I could have his daughter's hand in marriage. And was that then, your fleece? Jason, Jason, was that your fleece that you that put out? That was my fleece. Yes, that gotcha. was my fleece, brother. Uh, but but I, I loved how you laid out the book with the assumptions that we all have uh, just in common evangelical, typical Southern Baptist life and, and across the board, the idea that we need to hear from God and that I should expect to hear from God. That was the, the second part really of your book. Your book is divided up into four parts. Yeah. And that second and third part were the, were the heart of the book. But you set the book up by giving us those false assumptions and then using uh, the heart of the book in really chapter three, uh, breaking down the text that these hearing the voice of God teachers and advocates would hold to. And he just took it text by text, idea by idea, and broke it down very clearly to give the meaning, the sense of what the text is really saying. And I appreciated that. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, it was a, that, that to me was the, the strength of the book to be able to look at it as a reader and say, well, yes, this definitely, this is what this text would say. And it doesn't say anything about uh, a fleece or some kind of voice or a still small whisperer or uh, any of the other uh, false kinds of ideas that the uh, common yeah. Christian would hold to. Yeah. And yet, you know, when I was, um, when I was a young believer, I had, a, and I mentioned this in the chapter on the fleece, I had a, a friend of mine who was instrumental in my salvation, who was in the midst of making a decision, he said, well, I put out a fleece and the Lord revealed this. And I was like, a fleece? What Like, what? What? What do you mean a fleece? I don't understand. I'm not sure I haven't heard that word before. Like I said, I was a, a brand new believer. Yeah. And then he explained it. And I thought, oh, that sounds biblical. Yeah, I guess. I, I mean, Gideon did it. It must be biblical. And then, you know, years later, when after I've done this a hundred times and tried decisions on the basis of this, I go back and look at it and, and start thinking of it in terms of, of the faulty assumptions that I reveal in the book. And it becomes obvious, I think, that that is not a, a paradigm for decision making. I mean, Gideon is anything but a hero in that sense. The fleece was entirely him looking for an excuse not to do what he did not want to do. He was a, he was a very cowardly man that God had cornered and, and God had already clearly revealed to him what he was to do. He was not trying to make a decision at all. Right. So it's, it's, it's passage after passage like that, like dominoes that just fell down for me as I started looking at them and, and analyzing the whole paradigm. And I remember uh, since I had grown up in my early Christian life, thinking that I could expect to hear God speak to me on, on the red bat phone, you know, and get private messages from heaven uh, directly to me from him outside of scripture. And that this would help me make decisions and, and help guide my steps and, and all of that. I remember thinking that was my expectation. And then when I started to, to hear Greg Kokel and his series on um, decision king and the will of God, just systematically cut down each one of these things. I remember getting to the end of that and thinking, I've just, I feel like I've been robbed of my relationship with the Lord. I feel like I've been robbed of my intimacy and robbed of, of this whole way of making decisions. Now, what do I do? I feel like all the tools have been taken away from me. And that's where the, I think the second half of, of the book really tries to come in and rebuild that confidence in, look, you've been given scripture and you've been given the wisdom of God in, in his word and revelation on the moral will of God. You have everything you need to make decisions. And it was, for me, it was that early Bible school professor who caused me to doubt that. And then my, um, my, my foray into another paradigm as all those dominoes started to fall, it was, it took all of that before I finally, it just crystallized. And I thought, okay, this is a sufficiency of scripture issue. This is God's word is enough for me. And he has, he has in his love and providence given me everything I need. I don't need anything else. 
And so when you cast the believer back upon scripture, at first we feel like we've been thrown out in the middle of an ocean without a life support or, or a buoy or a life raft or anything like that until, until you realize what the, how precious scripture is. And then suddenly you realize that I haven't been abandoned at all. I, I, God has loved me everything I need. And it's because I need to understand what we mean by sufficiency of scripture before I'm able to appreciate that. Yeah. And I, I want to affirm as well. That's another super strength of the book. The book is that your entire case is built on the sufficiency of scripture. And that's a doctrine that, that I would say most evangelicals would say, of course, I believe that. Right. I, I affirm that it's sufficient. And so you don't pull this something out of left field. You say, wait a minute, we all agree to this. So why is it that in this case we make an, ex an exception? Yeah. And I, I guess to, to kind of keep this conversation going, um, a follow-up question was for broader evangelicalism, you mentioned all these different denominational categories that really use this um, HVG theology in one form or fashion. Why, why do you think that, this has spread almost unchallenged over the last, I don't know, uh, 30, 40 years or so. It may even go back a yeah. little further than that. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, I would say it goes back even further than that. Um, probably the, the introduction of the charismatic movement in the early 1900s has had something to do with that. Kind of opening people up to the notion that uh, God continues to, to reveal things and that prophets can hear from God. And then, of course, it becomes... Um, becomes much more personal when you have people saying, well, if, if God's still speaking today, then maybe I should be able to hear him as well. And, and scripture is filled with examples of God speaking. In fact, this is the case that Charles Stanley makes in his book, right? God spoke to the, the people back then in the Bible times. Why did you think he loved them more? Do you think that he cared for them more? Do you think that he, that they needed him more than you do? No, you need him just as badly. He loves you just as much. So therefore you should expect the same thing. And this is one of the assumptions that I deal with in the book is that I can expect to hear from God because God loves me as much as he loved them. And so he'll continue to reveal things to me just as he did to them. So then, then, then that theology takes on sort of a personal flavor as people begin to expect that, that they also can receive divine revelation. I think that the one, one thing that has probably done more to embed this into modern evangelicalism in recent years than anything else was uh, Henry Blackaby's book, Experiencing God, I think because that was promoted in, in Lifeway and among Southern Baptist churches at the convention and and all over that, that I mean, there was even a virtual and experiencing God virtual reality set up at the SBC convention in Anaheim this last week. I saw that. I saw something yeah. about that. On, yeah. Yeah. It, it continues that that book, Experiencing God, continues to have an impact in evangelicalism to the point where you know, you can have you can have people stand up and applaud that book and promote that book in churches that would deny uh, continuing revelation through charismatic prophets and apostles and all of that stuff. And the Southern Baptist the Southern Baptist denomination has been very good in 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 having a cessationist perspective writ large, generally speaking, but then you have this this teaching that's coming in in experiencing God through Henry Blackaby that completely undermines that. And that, I think, has done a lot to spread that theology amongst uh, our cessationist brethren, where they don't see any inconsistency with saying, yeah, the word of God is sufficient, it's authoritative, inerrant, and infallible, and trust it. You know, it's unlike nothing else. And then that same person who believes that, say the, the little old lady sitting in the back pew, she's going to bow her head after the, the church service on a Sunday morning and wait to hear from God as to where she should go out for lunch or who she's supposed to speak to after the service. She's waiting for this private revelation. And and. And our good folks don't see a disconnect between those two things. So when I wrote the book, I really wasn't addressing it so much to the, the charismatic extremists, the word of faith guys, the new apostolic reformation guys. I was really gearing it to the people who are being influenced by Charles Stanley and Henry Blackaby and Beth Moore, who are sitting in the church pew. And though they would think that those charismatics are crazy kooks, they themselves are waiting to hear from God as, in terms of when they should plan their vacation, which flight they should book or which house they should buy or what college they should attend or who they should marry. And yet it's the, the difference in the charismatic kook theology of continuationism and the little lady sitting in the back pew waiting to hear from God to, as to which Sunday school class she should attend next week. The difference in those theologies is one of degree, not of substance. Because mm -hmm. 
substance, it is the same assumptions. It's the same theology. It's just the degree is different. The little lady waiting to hear from God about which Sunday school class she should teach is viewed as somehow spiritual, whereas the charismatic crazy who's waiting to hear from God about the, the pres results of the next presidential election uh, is, is just a lunatic, and we, and we disparage him. And, and yeah. yet this is the same theology applied in two different situations. Yeah. So it has been spread amongst cessationist circles, otherwise solid and orthodox circles. I do think it is a denial of the sufficiency of Scripture, and that is my, my grave concern. I, I don't think any of us doubt or deny that uh, charismatics like Benny Hinn and, and Kenneth Copeland and Creflo Dollar, Joyce Meyer, that these people deny the sufficiency of Scripture, but yet Beth Moore can do the exact same thing, and she is widely embraced in otherwise orthodox churches all across the fruited plain, and, and people don't don't blink an eye at that. Yeah, that's a good point. Wow, there's so much we could do, we could go into there, but I want to keep this moving. Um, so I've got uh, one other question to kind of follow this up, and then we, I want to address. Um, uh, maybe one or two objections that are raised in the book that I think will be very helpful to just hear you talk through those a little yep. bit. Um, yep. But for, for the big box Christian companies and publishers um, who offer this material just all over, I mean, it, it's, it's everywhere. I'm sure you could have, you bought it, you could buy it at the SBC convention in Anaheim. Um, you can order it off of Lifeway. I mean, there's just a plethora of this stuff. To, to out there. So like one of the, I've got some family members who um, are certainly weaker in the faith and less mature in the faith. And I don't mean that in a negative sense, but they're, you know, they're, they're looking to grow spiritually. They're wanting to buy a book on so-and-so topic and they're going to go to lifeway.com or christianbook.com or something like that. And they're going to see, you know, hundreds of books on Christian living. This is really fitting into the Christian living section. And, you know, there's like a million books in Christian living out there. Yeah. And how 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 can someone, of course, read reading your book would help. But how would someone be maybe kind of get their radar up for cluing into some of the language used by these teachers that we're, we're discussing? So maybe they can have maybe um some caution and discernment in picking up one book versus picking up another book. Yeah. So your average person who teaches HBG theology or hearing the voice of God theology is not going to come out in chapter one and say, look, I want you to understand that I wholeheartedly deny the sufficiency of scripture. I deny that it's authoritative. I deny that it's enough for you. You really should be looking at for any place else for God to speak because it's just not going to suit the bill. You, you might want to just push your Bible to the back shelf and, and begin to learn to hear from God. That's not the language that they use. Charles Stanley, Beth Moore, um, uh, some of these cessationists who, who believe this, uh, even um, Henry Blackaby, they will use language like scripture is sufficient. We do not deny the sufficiency of scripture. That's They will say this out of one side of their mouth, but then they will turn around and tell you, but scripture doesn't tell you which house to buy, which college to attend, which career to choose, which wife to marry, where to go to school, etc. And so you need to learn to discern the signals and, and read the signs and hear the voice of God for yourself. Well, they're really saying two entirely different things. So they will use language like scripture. There's nothing like scripture in all the world. It's God's final infallible world word. God is not adding to the canon. The canon is closed. God's not adding to scripture. There's no more extra books. The revelation that we're talking about is not on the same par as scripture. Scripture is unique. They will do all of those affirmations of the word of God, but then they will use phrases like, but, the Lord told me, or the Lord led me, or the Lord spoke to me, or the Lord impressed it upon my heart. I felt a nudging. I felt a prompting. I heard the still small voice. I heard a whisper. I just felt the Lord leading me to do X, Y, and Z. And that's the language that they use. Or I needed to make a decision, so I put out a fleece, and the Lord confirmed it. Well, these ideas of, of fleeces and still small voices and leading and confirmation, these are all words and phrases used in Scripture. So the undiscerning believer who picks up a, a, a book on how to be led by God or hear from God, and they're reading through the chapters and they hear about the still small voice and think, yeah, that's Elijah. That's First Kings 19. I remember that. That seems biblical. Um, the Lord confirming this. I, I think I remember something about confirmations in scripture. That seems biblical. And the fleece. Yeah, I remember the story of Gideon. He did put out a fleece. That seems biblical. But unfortunately for most believers, that's as deep as their discernment goes, is the ability to connect 
a word or a phrase they hear an author use and a word or, and that same word or phrase that they found in scripture. And then they connect it and think, okay, well, he must be handling scripture, right? Uh, if he didn't, he wouldn't be writing a whole book on this subject. And they don't think much deeper than that, unfortunately. So people embrace that teaching and, and that's really the language that they need to be looking out for is anything that points you to a voice of God, a revelation outside of what is in scripture. If you want that, my buddy, Justin Peters is famous for saying, if you want to hear God speak, read the word of God. And if you want to hear him speak audibly, read it out loud. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> and and that is, that's true. It's, that's, it's, you can't be any more simple than that. Yeah. It, it really is yeah. the point. That's the issue is just, yeah. you have to read scripture. So instead of finding a book that teaches you how to hear the voice of God outside of scripture, start reading books that, that teach you how to understand what scripture teaches and how to understand the word of God for yourself. So that when you read the word of God, you are hearing the voice of God. Yes, it is a voice that was originally spoken 2,000 years ago or 4,000 years ago, but it is a word of God which resonates through the ages. It says the same thing to his people in our context. It speaks to us as well. And so when I understand what the word of God says to the original audience that heard that, and I get the meaning of that passage, I'm hearing the exact same thing God said to them. He is saying the same thing to me. It doesn't need to be personal. It doesn't need to be fresh. It doesn't need to be, you know, right out of heaven in a word or a voice today because he has given it to me in his, in his word and his word is living and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword. And so that word speaks to us today too, because it is a living book and it says the same thing through all the ages. Does that help? Yeah. That answer the question. Yeah, that's really good, Jason. Do you have anything that you want to jump in there real quickly before we move on? Well, Pastor Jim, I, I was thinking as I was um, looking at your table of contents in the book, and I thought it might be helpful for the listener just to to hear some of the statements that we say that are commonly spoken. Like, I heard a still small voice. A verse jumped off the page. God gave me a sign. God opened a door. I had a piece about it. I felt led. These are all just common statements that are made uh, in Christianity. And, and, I, and I wanted the listener to hear that because what we've been talking about uh, and, and trying to, to get you to help us to understand better and critique is these statements would be outside of, of Scripture in terms of being our guide. And so yeah. we, we want to be careful that um, we, we don't, uh, camp on those particular things. Um, I felt this peace or I felt the, uh, the God opened a door for me. And we want to go back to scripture as you've uh, been saying all along. And that's really, again, what the third part of your book is. But here's what I want to ask you about, Jim. So what do you say to the person who um, says, um, well, what about the uh, times in my life where I've um, felt like I just needed to call um, my uh, next door neighbor. And I called and my next door neighbor didn't answer. And so I felt like something was wrong and I ran over there and sure enough, they were lying in the floor and I called 911 and they got the medical attention and God led me to do that. I mean, those coincidences so-called coincidences yeah. seem to happen in life. You know, just recently, just let me explain one real quick. Um, I was looking at a Facebook post and um, it was a happy birthday uh, notification. And so I was typing happy, no happy birthday off of that notification. And I got a text. I'm doing it on my phone, but I got a text on my phone from the lady I'm typing to. She said, hey, I just uh, wanted you to know I got this piece of mail in my mail and it belongs to your daughter. And she had a picture of it. And sure enough, it was addressed to my daughter, but with the wrong address. And, and you know, there was just one of those weird coincidences of life. But people will use that to say, well, God led me. Yeah. Or God was involved with that. Yeah, it does happen to us. It happens quite frequently, but not just to believers, but to unbelievers as well. And so if that is the, if that's the voice of God that is I'm experiencing at that moment, that's divine revelation, then, you, then the person who advocates that has to say, well, God is revealing to the unbeliever as well, in which case then it's God's just speaking to everybody, Christian and non-Christian. And if that's the case, then why do I need to discipline myself to find out how to hear his voice? 
right? If God's doing it to believers and unbelievers as well. Unbelievers have these same experiences, and I don't discount that the experiences happen, nor that sometimes that they are, are very providentially significant. I have had it happen in my own life where I just get an I get a feeling about something. I think this is, something's not right here. And then, and, and later on that hunch turns out to be good. Well, unbelievers get hunches. Unbelievers have intuition. Unbelievers have get suspicious about things or feel inclined to do things and they do them. What causes that? I, I don't know. In the case of a believer, I can, I have no problem saying that sometimes the spirit of God does lay things upon on my heart. He does incline our minds and our hearts to do and to think certain things in order to accomplish his purposes. But I don't call that revelation. I don't call that authoritative or inerrant, nor do I teach people that you need to learn how to listen to it. Otherwise, you'll miss the Spirit's leading and you'll be disobedient to the Spirit. Because I, I can't say that about an intuition or a hunch. So I, I call them extraordinary providences. I think that it was Spurgeon who, who originally coined that term, extraordinary providences, where you just see the hand of God work in such a way as it's not miraculous because it's not a suspension of the laws of nature. It's not revelation because God is not speaking authoritatively and inerrantly and infallibly. So we have to add it to the end of scripture, but we do see the spirit of God working through his people in time, in our experience. And sometimes the providence of God in what he works out and the way he inclines our hearts and the hearts of other people works out to be so extraordinary that it's almost, you almost can sense it palpably that this is the work of the spirit of God. But far more often than that, the spirit of God is working in an, in an unpalpable or in an unnoticeable way. See, God is always at work in his providence. You and I, when we set this, when we set up this conversation several weeks ago, Duffy, uh, you said it for, we, we agreed that we were going to do this at a certain time because you guys are in a different time zone than I am. So I had the time set for what is to me this afternoon. And then I get an email from you about a half an hour ago saying, Hey, we're ready or an hour ago saying, Hey, we're ready when you are. And I was like, wow, that's, that's like three hours earlier than it was supposed to do. I believe that providentially that you and I are supposed to be having this conversation right now. Yeah. God, but can I say that the spirit of God led you? No. Would I say that the spirit of God laid that upon my heart? No, but I believe that God's by God's providence. He has orchestrated this to happen right now instead of Sure. Three hours from now, for what reason, I don't know, but I don't need to concern myself with the reason for it. I just trust in the providence of God to work sometimes palpably and discernibly and sometimes indiscernibly. But we have to trust in his providence and trust that his word is sufficient. So, yeah, those experiences happen. They, they really do. I've had them happen to me, but I don't call it revelation because the Bible doesn't call it revelation. I don't call it the spirit speaking or God directing or any of the or God speaking. I shouldn't say I shouldn't say I don't call it God directing. Sometimes I can see God directing in hindsight. But I don't know in the moment if this if this is the directing of God at that moment, right? I, I can't say that it's divine revelation that I'm following or the voice of God I'm following because scripture doesn't use that language for those experiences. I can say it's providential because I think that that is a biblical concept that by God's yeah. providence that these things have been arranged by, in this way. And as, as believers, we say that the spirit of God dwells in us. He seals us. He, he brings to our mind scriptures. He inclines our heart. He sanctifies us. He makes our heart desire certain affections. He puts those affections there. All of that is the work of the spirit of God in the life of a believer. So when we are living in the spirit and we're living under the dictates of the word of God and in conformity and obedience to the word of God, then I should expect that God by his providence is going to supernaturally direct our steps in a certain way. And that in following that, we're going to be able to see his handiwork in our lives. And so you'll notice that I described all of that without saying God spoke to me, God told me, God led me, none of that. Because I'm, I don't believe that any of that is divine revelation. I, I think we can honor God's work in our lives by using biblical language to communicate biblical ideas. Hey, Pastor Jim, let me jump in real quickly there. Um, I think it's extremely important in this conversation to make explicit that we are not denying the work and the power of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. I mean, Absolutely. he is present. He is a reality and he is a blessing. He's a comfort. And he, I mean, his job is to reveal the word of God to us and teach us through the word of God, right? And many other roles he plays in yeah. our lives. And so I can hear now just an objection, you know, saying, well, then you're denying the power of the work of the Holy Spirit if you're, if you're claiming this. And we actually want to say, no, we we are no. we are, we take the position that this is how the Holy Spirit works in us through the the combined power of the the Word, the message of the Word of God, and the Holy Spirit, and to, together that um, that re it nourishes us, 
it, it grows us in our sanctification and our discipleship and that sort of thing. So yeah. I just wanted to jump in there, the Holy Spirit. No, absolutely. I, I like to say that people who, who believe in HVG theology have at the very same time an underrealized and an overrealized pneumatology. Yeah. So that when I tell them you, you, the spirit of God is not whispering in your ear and giving you promptings and nudgings and trying to get you to make decisions. And that's not how the spirit of God interacts with you. They have an underrealized pneumatology in that they say, well, the spirit of God's not doing that. Then what is he doing? Like you just take on the Holy Spirit. You don't think the Holy Spirit's active in my life at all. And, and that just shows you how, how, how little of a view they have of the work of the spirit of God. Right. And then, then and at the same time, they have an overrealized pneumatology in that they think that every time a random thought pops into their head, that's the spirit of God. And so a, a, a thought pops in and they got to stop. And, OK, is that the spirit of God? And I have to test this. I have to examine this. Could this be the Lord teaching me or training me or, or trying to direct my steps? And so they, they try and see every random thought, every inclination of their heart as the work of the spirit of God and exegete it. They got to exegete it for, for direction or for guidance. And, and, and every little thing is, is somehow God trying his best to get through to them and trying his best to, to help them to direct their steps. And that's the over-realized part of it where, uh, and the under-realized part of it is if he's not doing, the spirit of God is not doing all these magnificent things, then you must be saying that you deny the work of the Holy Spirit. And I say, no, I, I believe the spirit of God calls us. He sanctifies us. He encourages us. He strengthens us. He comforts us. He teaches us. He gives us. He empowers us for service. He uses his word. He illuminates the word of God. You know, all of that is the work of the Holy Spirit. He's doing all of those things. And when we, and, and we ought to recognize those things and then walk in obedience to the word of God. And when we do that, we can trust that the Lord will direct our steps. Amen. Jason, do you have any follow-up for that just briefly before we move on? No, just, just that I appreciate again, the emphasis on the scripture, you know, we know that the scripture is profitable for teaching, reprove, correction, and training in righteousness. Uh, we, we know that it is uh, adequate to equip every uh, person that, that um, is a true believer. And that's with the spirit and with the scripture, we're able to um, discern what God would have us to do. Like one of the things that I appreciated about the book too, is the, the two illustrations that you gave Jim uh, regarding um, somebody who was using the scripture to uh, perhaps uh, find a wife or the, the, the vocation example that you use. And both of those examples are certain common uh, realities for the believer. And I think every sincere believer, they really want to know, is this the one I should marry? Is this the place I should work? Do I go to this job? And so uh, they don't have to sweat and worry and fret and, as you said, exegete all these signs and impressions and feelings and emotions. Just go with the scripture. And yep. what you say in the book is that the scripture gives us parameters, for example, who to marry um, in terms of are they a believer? Um, um, is this person uh, a female if you're a male and vice versa? Uh, I mean, these are parameters that are given in scripture that uh, give us the freedom to make the choices that we make. Yeah. Yeah. yeah as long this, as we're... Oh. we're Go as, I was gonna say, as long as we are making our choices and and choosing between between two equal options that are within the moral will of God and don't violate wisdom, then I make the statement that we are free to choose whichever one of those and with God's blessing. And, and right. you may make a choice that turns out horrible. You may choose the job in Dallas instead of Houston. You may take the one in Dallas and then you get there and it's not what it was made to be. And mm. the house didn't come through and the boss is horrible. And you know, they change the hours and you get a pay cut and, and things are just onerous there. Well, trust that in the providence of God, he allowed you to make that decision and that he used and that things turned and that the fact that things did not turn out as you expected is not proof that you weren't listening to God. It's Maybe it's point. proof that you made the decision that God wanted you to make in that situation so that he could use that adversity to teach you and to train you and to sanctify you. And so mm -hmm. walk through that and then and make your decisions that way, trusting the outcome to the Lord. And if it turns out to have been a decision that with it that didn't come out as you expected or didn't come out as you had hoped, then you learn from that and you walk on and you gain wisdom from that. And you trust, the, you trust that even if something results in difficult circumstances, that God will use those difficult circumstances to put you where he wants you and to sanctify you in that. 
That's a good, good word. Okay, so Pastor Jim, as we wrap things up and kind of wind down, um, we want to give our listeners, and particularly this is this podcast is to serve our church and just our area, but of course, you know, whoever else listens to it, praise God. But we want to uh, we want to give so, our folks something tangible um, to take away from from this uh, uh, conversation. So I know that you deal with this at the end of the book, which I thought was extremely helpful. You talk about a vocabulary change, um, words and phrases that we can begin to substitute phrase X with phrase Y. And it will help us and, and train us maybe just to think more biblically about um, discerning the will of God in our life. Like, what should we use instead of, well, um, I, I felt led by the spirit or the, the, the still small voice in my prayer closet. What are, what are some alternative vocabulary that we can use? Yeah, I'm a big advocate of using biblical language to communicate biblical concepts. So if a verse pops into my mind, I don't say, I don't say the spirit of God spoke to me and, and told me this. I just say, you know, I, I remember this passage of scripture. Now I was reading through this and, and the Lord allowed me in, in my mind, a passage of scripture popped in my mind and I saw that I understood it. And I thought, okay, there I'm convicted. So instead of using words like the Lord led me, I might use phrases like I felt convicted or I was encouraged or I was strengthened or I was comforted. Um, you know, it, I, I use the illustration in there. If my wife comes up and puts her arm around me and comforts me because I'm going through something difficult, or she comes and gives me a hug. I say, and but she says no words to me. She just puts her arms around me and embraces me and hugs me. I feel comfort in that moment. But in describing that to you guys, I wouldn't say my wife spoke to me and said, no, I'd say my wife comforted me by giving me a hug. That, that's the reality. When my wife speaks audibly to me, she's speaking to me. When she puts her arms around me and comforts me, she's comforting me. When she encourages me, she's encouraging me. When she, uh, you know, when she motivates me, she motivates me. I use biblical language to, to describe those biblical concepts. Of the work of the Spirit of God. So, when I hear something a sermon that strikes me, I don't say, "Oh, the Lord, the Lord spoke to me in that moment and told me blah blah blah." I just I say, "I was encouraged by that word. Uh, I, I saw an application in the passage of Scripture that I see a way in which I can apply the meaning of that text to my life, and and I'm trusting that the Spirit of God was there illuminating His Word to me, helping me understand the meaning of that passage. And now I want to walk in obedience to the Spirit of God. Those are when we are familiar with Scripture, we can allow biblical language to to shape our understanding of our experiences. And then when we talk about our experiences, we use phrases that are, are biblical. And, and by the way, using phrases like the still small voice, the leading of God, a fleece, I, held, I felt a peace about it. Those are biblical phrases, but we're not using those in the same way that the biblical authors use those phrases, which is why I deal with uh, each of those in, a, in a separate chapters of the book. Uh, because yeah. we need to make sure that when we're using biblical language, we're using it the way the biblical authors use the biblical language. Yeah, and I love the chapter that you, uh, it's toward the end, I think it's in the final section about the book of Acts and how the early church got started and the apostles themselves weren't waiting, weren't waiting for a special revelation from God. Every time they spoke and made a defense for the faith or were preaching or uh, conversing, I mean, we have so many accounts in the book of Acts of that happening. All of them appealed to Scripture and the authority of yeah. Scripture and the, um, the timelessness of Scripture, almost all of them, well, all of them are basically quoting the Old Testament, which is a whole, you know, that's, that's, that's important just in and of itself, uh, affirming the, you know, the Old Testament as sufficient as yeah. well for us. There, there's a, a perfect example of how the apostles made decisions is at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, where that yep. issue of circumcision comes up in the early church. And the apostles get together. And none of them say, look, the Lord spoke, spoke to him in a vision. I got a still small voice that revealed to me that we should, this is the decision we need to make. And this is what we need to write. And I just feel the Lord prompting me. It wasn't that at all. Paul and Barnabas came back and said, look, here's the gospel that we preach among the Gentiles. God has confirmed this by signs and wonders to demonstrate that this is what we are preaching. So they're acknowledging in the providence of God, the circumstances that has happened that have brought them to this point. Then they begin to quote from the Old Testament and they go back to the Old Testament. And at the end of that, the apostles say, it seems good to us to lay no further burden upon our Gentile brethren than X, Y, and Z. So they're just making a, a decision based upon an understanding of God's purposes in the Old Testament, an understanding of their circumstances and what would be best for the unity of the church. And, and they don't, at no, at no point did they say, hey, the spirit of God revealed to us, the spirit of God spoke to us. We just feel led. We, we put out a fleece 
and and we got in a confirmation and then we have a piece about it. And so here's what we've determined the Lord is speaking to our hearts in this moment. It was none of that at all. They just said, judging from circumstances, scripture, the wise thing, it seems best to us to do this. And that's what they did. That's how they made a decision. A decision which, by the way, was probably one of the most significant controversies that the early church faced. Yeah, and how simple is that to, I mean, how freeing is this, the wisdom model that you portray and that Greg Kokel has portrayed and yeah, Friesen. Very Friesen. Yeah, I mean, th it's so simple and freeing. Um, Jason brought up the kind of liberty of conscience with two, and you brought up the, the two equal opportunities that A or B, yeah. if they fall within the parameters, pick A or B. It's okay, either way. You can, yeah. it's uh, anxiety free, well, to a degree, right? But uh, depending on the level of the decision being made, but um, it is so liberating. Thinking. The yeah. liberating part is those three assumptions that I that I dismantle at the beginning of the book. Yeah. See, if, if you if you jettison the methodology without dealing with the assumptions, then you're going to feel abandoned, right? Yeah. That's why I laid out the assumptions. You you you're bringing. We are bringing to this conversation <clears throat> three assumptions that we're making. The presuppositions that we bring to the table about how God speaks to us and how and why I need to hear this voice of God. And once you dismantle that and show that the passages that are pressed into service to support these presuppositions don't mean what they say that they mean and that they're being abused and and you deal with the mentality first, this idea that I need to hear from God in order to make a decision. Scripture does not teach that. It just does not teach that anywhere or that I can expect to hear from God. There's nothing in Scripture that suggests that you and I, common everyday people, should expect to hear the voice of God. That Scripture does not teach that. Does Scripture teach that God spoke to apostles and prophets? Yeah, it does. But they weren't, I'm not an apostle. I'm not a prophet. I'm not Elijah. I'm not yeah. Moses. I shouldn't expect to hear from God. There's nothing in scripture that says the common everyday Joe, like you and me should expect to be receiving divine revelation on where to have lunch and, and the you know, landscaper to use. That's, that's not, scripture does not promise that. Once you, once you yeah. eliminate those assumptions that most people bring to the table, then you can walk through rationally all of the, all of the different issues that we typically uh, need to address in in how God speaks to us, and and I, I think that in that process it starts to become clear how God does and does not speak to us. Yeah, Jason, you have anything to add before we kind of wrap our episode up? Well, I just would say we highly recommend the book, and we we're going to have uh, this book available, also the Truth and Territory book that Jim has written in our resource center. Faith, we call it Faith at Home our church, and that'll be available for you. And and later on, we're going to even uh, give some of these books away and uh, to some of our listeners. And we want, we want this book in the hands of the people so that they can discern and they can learn and, and, and primarily so that they can begin to trust scripture and go to scripture and use that as the, the determining um, reality for their life and their decisions and how they think about um, choices that they make. And so um, highly recommended. Jim, thank you so much for taking the time. I I'm, I'm appreciate that the Lord led you to do this and, and there was a, a, a willingness to take the time to do it. Um, I'm happy to help out. And I, I appreciate you guys and your commending of the book and using it. I'm grateful that it's been a blessing in your lives. And, and I, I truly hope it'll be a blessing in the lives of many other people as well. Well, Jim, as we close, I'd like to give you just a couple of minutes. Um, would you speak to the person who will be listening or watching this from a pastoral perspective? And if they're, if, if something that we've said today on the podcast, or maybe they're reading through the book at some point, what would your advice be to, to them as they are, they might meet this content with kind of deer in the headlights or confusion yeah. or and you, you mentioned that this is kind of a product of you yourself coming to a realization. Oh, wait a minute. This is, I can't, I can't do this. There's something not jiving here. Right? So what would you say to the person from a pastoral perspective on dealing with this content? Um, yeah. Uh, first of all, I would quote a former president and say, I feel your pain. I feel your pain. I really do. Um, because I've gone through it. I, I had to come out of that myself. I, I understand yeah. the feeling of a feeling like something, your intimacy with God has been robbed from you. But yeah. intimacy with God through a false methodology is not true intimacy. It's a feeling of intimacy that doesn't actually exist. I, I would say that true intimacy with God comes in understanding his word and, and being revealed and having the word of God revealed to you and, and illuminated to you as you understand it and you absorb it and you take it in, you trust it and you rely upon the sufficiency of scripture. 
that's where intimacy really, really comes in. Uh, I know that in the last hour we have covered a lot of material and there's a lot of questions that people could have. And I hate to say it, but there's just, the book is thorough. It's almost 300 pages. I try and deal in a very simple, straightforward way with, with all of that answer as many questions as I can. It's as thorough as I could possibly make it. And I would just encourage you to, to hear me out. If you're in the process of reading it or you're interested in reading it, hear, hear me out. I, I tell you my own story at the beginning. I deal with the assumptions. I deal with all the false methodology. And then I try and answer a bunch of questions at the end that, that probably that raised. And, and just give it, a, give it a hear all the way to the end. And then ask yourself, is this methodology that I'm relying upon truly taught in Scripture? And if it's not taught in Scripture, then by giving it up, you're, you're not giving up anything. You're not losing anything. That's a good in fact, point. I, I would make the case that you're actually gaining a trust and reliance upon mm. the word of God um, like you've never had before. And that can only be for your good. So, man, that's good. I have scripture. Yeah. The, the giving up something, that's what you feel like. You're, you mentioned earlier, you feel like you got robbed. I lost it. Yeah, I feel like but, I lost something. But, and, but you really haven't lost anything. <laughs> no, I gained I gained something of immense value, and that is yeah. a reliance upon and an understanding of the role of Scripture in my life. Mm, that's so good. Well, Jim, thank you for, for doing this with us today. I'm going to wrap our episode up, and I'll let you get to it today. Again, apologies for the, the timing. Um, it is Not the at all. By the providence of God, it worked out. By the Amen. providence of God, it worked out to give me a good illustration for this episode. A Amen. Amen. That's right. Well, that's it for today's episode, folks. We thank you once again for taking the time to listen to the Asking for a Friend podcast. And we hope it's been a blessing to you. Don't forget to like and share this. You, If you're watching it on YouTube or on Facebook or some other social media, share the video. If you're listening to Audible or Audibly, share the podcast with a friend through text or through social media. And um, help get Jim's book um, out there so that folks can see what's going on with this. And, and uh, we're thankful for him and his work through this book. And don't forget, lastly, that if you have a question at a future date that, we, that you'd like for us to answer on the Asking for a Friend podcast, go to our church website, bbcemory.org, go to the media tab, scroll all the way to the bottom of the page, and there's a box there you can submit a question and we'll consider it to answer in a future podcast. So until next time, grace and peace be with you all. Have a great day.